to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. And then you can hear the Word of God and be able to read it as well. And that's always great when the Word of God comes in through a couple of the gates, both the eye gate and the ear gate. And then if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home as a gift from the Lord and make a good friend of it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, a miracle of God. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it's a living word. Thank you that it's a word that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Thank you that it's a word that is worth building our lives and our eternities on, and that makes it unique in all of the world. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be strongly present behind the truth that is spoken this morning and to each one of our hearts. For those of us who know you and have trusted Jesus as our Savior, that you would produce a greater appreciation in our hearts for him and for you. We pray, Lord, for those that stand before you now that not haven't yet given their lives to you, haven't yet received the gift that Christmas is all about. We pray that today would be the day that something would click in their hearts between you and them, and today would be the day of their surrender to you. And then, Lord, giving their hearts to you and entering into the life that you have planned for them. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Christmas is a day that is set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ into uh, this fallen world. And I am, at Christmas time, I can't help in terms of the way that it's celebrated within the culture, I'm always reminded of a story that I'm very fond of, and that is two women were out Christmas shopping. They came to a store window with a nativity set on display. And the one woman said to the other, Well, will you look at that? Those Christians are trying to take over Christmas. The next thing you know, they'll be glomming on to Easter. Of course, it's... Uh, humorous, and most humor is 
effective and powerful because it has an element of truth related to it, and uh, certainly this does as well. And I would say that at the very least it communicates that what is true about Christmas these days concerning that there's a lot of confusion about it out there. But there really shouldn't be any confusion about what Christmas is about at all. Why, no confusion as to the reason why Jesus was born into the world because the Holy Spirit tells us with really an unmistakable clarity in verse 21 that Jesus was born into the world in order to save us from our sins. So Christmas is all about the birth of a Savior. Well, that raises the question, what is sin? I would say the average person that isn't familiar with the Bible would think, uh, thinks of what sin is as uh, identifying a sinner as uh, someone who is e- extraordinarily, uh, has committed some extraordinarily heinous act. That everybody isn't a sinner, but a sinner is, that's a phrase or a term that ought to be reserved for bank robbers or for axe murders or something uh, like that. And so the term sinner is one that should be reserved for extraordinary wrongdoers. But God defines it differently. To sin is simply to be less than perfect. Our English word sin comes from a Greek word. Uh, it's a translation of a Greek word, hamartia, which simply means to miss the mark. And the image that it's intended to produce within everyone's mind is uh, to watch an archer go out into a, a field, uh, set up the straw uh, bales of hay, put the target on the straw, uh, go out 30 yards or 50 yards or whatever it might be, pull the arrow from the quiver, settle it onto the bow, and then aim for the bullseye of the target. And if they hit the bullseye, they haven't sinned. That's a bullseye. But to miss the bullseye is to sin. It is to miss the target. It is to be less than perfect. And, it, and there's no um, uh, grading on the basis of curve. There's no uh, any kind of uh, consideration given to effort or anything like that. To miss the mark is to miss the mark, whether we do so intentionally or whether we do so uh, inadvertently. And so to sin is simply to be less than perfect. And the Bible teaches, since that is the definition, that every single one of us in this room and in this world and everyone in human history, except Jesus himself, every one of us is a sinner. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Again, writing to the Romans, As it is written, There is none righteous, No, not one. No matter what your mom thinks of you, God knows you're not perfect. So each and every one of us have been less than perfect. Less than perfect in our actions, in the course of our life. We've been less than perfect in our speech. We've been less than perfect in our thought life. We've been less than perfect in our motivation for our actions and for our speech. We've been less than perfect in what is known as the sin of omission, to know to do good in a situation and then for selfish reasons or other reasons to refuse to do good in that situation. And that's the sin of omission. 
And the Bible teaches that not only are each and every one of us sinners by virtue of being less than perfect, but each of us is less than perfect on a daily basis. So what's the bullseye that each of us has missed? It's perfection. It is the standard of God's word, his commandments, his definitions of right and wrong. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17, All unrighteousness is sin. Every violation of God's commandments having to do with our actions, with our thoughts, with our speech, with our motives, with our omission, all of that to fall short of that is sin. And I think it's important for people to realize that no one needs to be offended at God's assessment of each of us as sinners. Sometimes people are offended by that. But once we realize what the true definition of it is, then we realize that God's not being offensive in any way when he tells us that we are sinners. It's just God being honest with each of us. Well, someone might then say, if all of us are sinners, then why make such a big deal out of it? Why can't God just accept it concerning us and just ignore it? And the reason why our sin cannot be ignored has been encapsulated, I think, best in the words of an old Puritan when he wrote, The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. So you could write that down. Say, no, no, I've committed it to memory already. I don't have the foggiest idea what you just said. You say it again. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. Here's the translation of that. He cannot lower the standard of perfection as a requirement for being able to enter into heaven and still be a righteous God. He cannot do that. Otherwise, he'll violate his own nature. God faced a significant problem in his desire to save and to forgive sinners. The problem is that the righteousness or the rightness or the right onness that is required in heaven is perfection. And that man is less than perfect, we are unrighteous, we are sinners, and thus we are disqualified from ever getting into heaven on the basis of our own efforts or on the basis of our own merits. Again, as as Paul wrote to the Romans, there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned again and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the consequence of sin. All have sinned, you say, well, big deal, and fallen short of the glory of God. Missed the life that God has planned for us. Isaiah, even speaking of it in the Old Testament, said concerning our righteousness, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, that is, that's our best, are like filthy rags. And yet, as much, and, and as much as God loves man, as much as he longs to have a personal relationship with man, and one day bring us into the glory of heaven, he cannot ignore the seriousness of sin. Because if he did, he would be unrighteous. So what's the solution? 
to God's dilemma. This holy God who loves his fallen and sinful creation. He didn't create us sinful. The fall of Adam and Eve. So here's this holy God who wants to save this fallen creation, fallen man, have a relationship with uh, man. And so what's the solution to the dilemma? And there's only one solution. He is able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. For it was there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness to be put to our account and thus give us the perfect righteousness that is required in order to enter into heaven. And yet, at the same time, not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of sin. You see, no one can look at the cross of Calvary. No one can look at Jesus hanging on that cross and ever come to the conclusion that sin is not a big deal in heaven or that sin is not a big deal to God or that it's inconsequential, that it doesn't really matter, that God has a casual attitude concerning the seriousness of sin. It is only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death on the cross that allows God to remain just, absolutely holy, and still be the justifier of sinful man. And it's only through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin that allows a perfectly holy and righteous God to save sinners and again remain just in doing that. Someone may ask, can heaven be so holy that but a single sin, much less a lifetime of sin, can heaven be so holy that but a single sin in my life could disqualify me for it? And the answer is yes. And don't fight against that truth. That's a truth to be embraced. That's a truth to be celebrated to be excited about. Don't fight against it. It's a wonderful truth. Personally, I like the fact that God is holy. I like the fact that heaven is that holy. That's what I hope to find in my search for the meaning and the purpose of life. I hope that when I ultimately found God, that he would be a holy God. I wasn't hoping that I would find a bigger, stronger, smarter version of myself or any other man or woman that I had ever met in life. That when I found God, he would just be a bigger, stronger, smarter version of every other sinner in the world. How terrible would that be to have that be the conclusion of a search? What hope would there be in finding that? When I finally found God, I was happy to discover that this is a holy God, and I was not disappointed to learn of the holiness of heaven. Sin has ruined this world. It is sin that has ruined this world. And frankly, I'm thrilled that God will not allow it to ruin heaven And I'm thankful that God is as high and holy a God as he is. And I am thankful that heaven is as high and holy a place 
as it is. And I think that what our world has lost today is the consciousness of the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God and in the eyes of heaven. And we have lost that consciousness to our own peril. And I would contend that the two greatest things that keep people in our culture in the United States of America from accepting God's gift of salvation from the consequences of sin by putting our faith in Jesus as our personal Savior, the two greatest causes is, number one, the failure to understand and accept that I am a sinner by God's definition. And then second, and I think this is the greater of the two, an unwillingness to take the seriousness of sin seriously. The tendency on the part of people to think, yes, I recognize that I'm a sinner, but to shrug their shoulders and to view it as no big deal. Why do we feel that way? Why do so many people feel that way? Because that's the prevailing view of sin in the world that we live in. I run into very few people who will not admit that they are sinners when they understand God's definition. The far harder thing is to get people to view their condition as serious, to take the seriousness of sin seriously, as seriously as God takes it. Sin is a very, very big deal, even if it is no longer considered a big deal. In the insane asylum that is called planet Earth today and our culture, I think, specifically, sin's a very, very big deal because of the judgment that it deserves and, indeed, it requires from a holy God there are a lot of consequences to sin, but the greatest consequence has to do with our eternal destination. The Bible teaches that if a person doesn't trust in Jesus, the Savior that heaven, the Father, has sent into the world, then that person will die in their sins, will spend an eternity in what Jesus himself describes as an everlasting lake of fire where nothing dies, not even a worm and where there will be gnashing of teeth and wailing. You say, that's pretty heavy for Christmas message, isn't it? Christmas is heavy. It really is. We'll get to that in just a moment. You say, can I leave now? No, you can't leave now. But do you realize that there's an even more sobering and horrifying picture of the seriousness of sin recorded in the Bible? than God's description of hell. And it's the picture of a holy, perfect, sinless Son of God stripped and hanging on a cross, crowned with thorns, nails driven through his hands and through his feet, covered with his own blood, by a merciless beatings in scourging that morning, covered with the 
spit in the blasphemies of sinful man, crying out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It isn't the description of hell that instructs us concerning the seriousness of sin supremely, but it is the cross of Jesus Christ where he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what was God's motive in providing us with a Savior? The motive is a simple one. It's a powerful one. It's a great, great motive. It's the motive of love. God did this in the providing us of a Savior out of the greatness of his love for us. And more than that, the greatness of his love for you personally. Would you just take a moment and think about that? Think about where we've been in life. What we've seen, what we've done. And yet God looks at our lives The greatness of his love for us, for our souls, his his longing to have a personal relationship with us, us individually and personally, you by name, was so great that he was willing to send his son into the world and to endure that kind of suffering in order that you and I could have that relationship most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, there's the motive, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him or trust in him for salvation should not perish but have everlasting life. John wrote in his first epistle, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is the love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfying payment for our sins. Again, the book of Romans, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's humbling. Christmas is a, everybody processes Christmas a little different way, even as Christians. But Christmas humbles me as a Christian. It it humbles me as a person. You think about the enormity of the sacrifice that both father and son were willing to make in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And the first sacrifice of all, 33 and a half years before the cross, was Jesus' incarnation, his birth into this world, the willingness of Jesus to come into this world at all humbles me. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he said concerning Jesus, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul was humbled by the fact that Jesus was willing to leave the glory of heaven 
and enter into the fallenness of the world, even before the cross, independent of the cross, that he'd be willing to come into this world and it, it, from the glory of heaven. And Jesus hinted at the cost of all of it in his prayer. In John chapter 17, on the night before his crucifixion, when he prayed to the Father and he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before Jesus came into the world, all he had ever known was the glory of heaven. And coming into this world, he laid aside that glory for you and for me. And immediately before the cross, he longed for the glory of heaven again, but only after he'd paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins. And I confess to you, I cannot fully fathom the greatness of his sacrifice of being willing to be born into this world. I've never been to heaven. I will be there one day. But all I've ever known is the fallenness of this world. And I know as much as I appreciate the willingness of Jesus to leave the glory of heaven to come into this world the way that he did, I know one day when I'm in that heavenly scene, only then will I fully appreciate the sacrifice of both the Father and the Son just in Jesus being willing to come into the world at all. And then, of course, there is the sacrifice that Jesus made, the sacrifice of both Father and Son, made upon Jesus' death upon the cross. And again, Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he said, being found in appearance as a man, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And then here it is, even the death of the cross. The Apostle Paul had seen plenty of Roman crucifixions. And when he stops and he thinks about the fact that Jesus came into the world in order to die for sinners, to provide us with salvation as a gift, and he's penning that by the Holy Spirit, he can't finish the sentence without mentioning even the death of the cross. Born to die, and there is... in. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, he speaks of Jesus' incarnation, but he realizes that over that cradle in Bethlehem there was a cross, that this child was born into the world to ultimately die for our sins. We sing that chorus, Amazing Love, How can it be that you, my King, should die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you. And all I do, I honor you. Well, I'd be negligent if I didn't also declare how to receive God's gift of salvation and forgiveness this morning. We receive God's gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins by simply putting our faith or putting our trust in Jesus. You say, that's it? You have to do that and then sign like a five-year warranty or some would have to do something to it. Mm -mm. It's just that simple. Salvation is a free gift. If I try to add anything to it, now it's not a gift. 
Now it's works. Now it's something that I've, I'm earning in some way. And so God makes salvation recognizing we can't earn it. We can't even earn 5% of it. We can't earn a half of 1% of it. So he makes salvation a free gift. And so salvation is that pure gift from God. And we can take Jesus' word for it. You don't have to believe me. A bunch of religious leaders came to him one day and they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And the idea is, all right, give us the list of all the good things we need to do so we can know that when we die, we will go to heaven. Or we can do and know we are right in pleasing God. And Jesus answered them and, and he said to them, this is the work of God. They probably had their pens clicked and in place with their yellow pads. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. No gift does us any good if we don't receive it and we don't open it and appropriate it to our lives. And when a person simply trusts in Jesus, says, Jesus, says to God the Father, God, I, be, I confess to you this morning that your assessment of me is true. I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I recognize the seriousness of sin in the light of your word here this morning. So I confess my sin to you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son into the world to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sin. And I put my trust in what he did for me And I give you my life this morning. When a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're born again by the Holy Spirit. And now you have the capacity for relationship with God and now you enter into the life that you've been created for. And something wonderful happens in kind of the accounting side of heaven at that point in time. And that is the Bible says that Jesus' righteousness is now put to our account. Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect rightness, right onness, is put to our account on the basis of our faith in him so that, because our life is covered by his sacrifice, so that God w- looks at our lives for the rest of this life and all the life to come, and all he sees is our faith in Christ and the righteousness of Jesus put to our account. And now we have the righteousness, the perfect rightness, that is required for heaven, and it is received by faith. Let's take a moment and bow. And those of you who know the Lord, if you just would pray for everyone that doesn't know the Lord right now in the room. And I want to give you just an opportunity, any of you that don't know the Lord this morning, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, give you an opportunity to invite Heaven's Savior, to invite Jesus into your life this morning by simply putting your trust in him. Just saying, God, I admit that I am a sinner and I believe that my sin has separated me from you and I want to have a relationship with you, my creator, and I want to put my trust in Jesus for that today. That's the whole meaning of Christmas. That's the whole reason for Jesus coming into the world. It's not enough to know it, though. 
There has to come a point in your own life where you personally, between you and God, receive that gift. And if you'd like to do that this morning, I just ask that you simply raise your hand where it is that you're seated, and I'll lead you in a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. And so simply raise your hand right now where it is that you're seated so I can see you, and then I'll know who I'm leading in prayer this morning.